This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to The Drill Down. We've got business stories behind stocks and a move. I'm Corey Johnson with episode number 192. Well, just ahead, Airbnb sees a profit as travel rebounds and they reap the benefits from some tough decisions that now seem long ago. And some insight in the impact of illegal shipping with Russia from shipping giant Ardmore. And a fascinating conversation with the CEO of Zwara, Tenzao, talks to us about entrepreneurship and about how everything will soon be for rent. But first, it's sponsor time. The Drill Down is brought to you by ERA. Never miss another critical event or insight ever with ERA. Customize your company watch lists and track key events, mentions, filings, and more, all within an easy-to-use, customizable interface. That's ERA, A-I-E-R-A dot com. And you can listen to The Drill Down on any of your favorite podcast platforms, including iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeart, TuneIn. Um, I don't know. There's others, Isaac. Deezer, that's one. All of so them. So many ways to listen to us. But on all of these... You can subscribe. You can follow us. If you click the right button, you'll make sure to catch every single show. And the drill down is brought to you by Brain Trust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Brain Trust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com. That's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com to learn more. I'm Corey Johnson. Welcome to The Drill Down. We've got the business stories behind Stocks on the Move. Joining me to help me figure out those stories and explore the great ideas behind what all these companies are actually doing in real life is Isaac Webster, our executive producer. Isaac? Corey, I love it when you say explore. Whoa, gets me going. Really? Corey, what stocks are you drilling down on today? <laughs> <laughs> That's such an L.A. thing. It's so good. No, it really is great to see you. No, miss you mean it. <laughs> Miss you mean it. Oh, yeah. I think they say that all over Let's the place. Let's drill into uh, Airbnb. Airbnb trades under ABNB and shares are up 61% since the, since the start of the year 2023, though Airbnb shares are lower by 23% in a year. But uh, a great start to 2023. So Airbnb, unique among uh, many of the unicorns of, call it 10 years ago, the Uber's Airbnbs of the world. Uh, Airbnbs is profitable. They recorded an annual profit for the first time ever. Uber, take note. It can be done. And one of the reasons it can be done is if you've got a great business model like these guys do. Uh, their bookings were up nearly a third in the quarter that they just reported in the last week. Uh, as with revenues up 40% to $8.4 billion. But to me, what was super interesting was, you know, there have been so many headlines about layoffs in the tech world and the context is largely lost. That The companies were hiring so aggressively during the pandemic that for most of these big companies, Google, Microsoft, uh, Salesforce, and so on, they are kind of right back to where they were right at the beginning of the pandemic in terms of headcount. Uh, Airbnb took some uh, hard layoffs, difficult choices in 2020 
when the pandemic hit. Uh, and as a result, their headcount still to this day is 5% lower than it was in 2019. But their revenue now is 75% higher. Huh, I did not amazing. know that. Yeah, that is pretty amazing. Yeah, so they cut a lot of people. Yeah. It was, they were really difficult choices right then. The world uh, was felt like it was in an absolute uh, collapse. And uh, as a result for this company, they have not had to cut since. And as everybody else is cutting jobs in Silicon Valley, at least on the margin, Airbnb is not. They're still hiring. They're still, you know, lean. But uh, it was interesting to hear CEO Brian Chesky on the conference call reporting uh, year-end and Q4 results talk about how the pain from 2020 is really benefiting the company now, not just in terms of lower costs and their higher revenues, but also in the way that they work. Here's CEO Brian Chesky. Something was really interesting happened. So obviously in 2020, we had to make some really difficult decisions and we became a much smaller and more focused company. And the obvious result of that is that we got more efficient and more profitable. But there was a less obvious result. What ended up happening is we had fewer people in meetings and people can move a lot faster. And we concentrated all of our very best people and put them on only a few problems. And I think that's been an explanation for why the company's grown really quickly. But also I think it's made us a much more attractive place to work because it's much easier to get work done. And we have a general philosophy that we want the very best people in every field to come to Airbnb in every function. We're functionally organized. And I think that, you know, we're one of the few tech companies that isn't, you know, doing layoffs. We're not cutting, we're not freezing. We're actually stepping on the gas. But in our mind, stepping on the gas doesn't mean adding a huge amount of people. We're gonna to continue to stay really lean, um, but we're, we're really focused on just really hiring in key positions. So Isaac, we were with our tiny little company, we run it lean and mean without a lot of meetings. My goodness, hardly any at all. Uh, and, and I'm sure some of our listeners are saying, what? How do you do that? Do you remember uh, uh, when we, we used to work at Bloomberg, uh, Isaac, one weekend, I happened to be in New York City on a Monday morning, and you walk, and I came in, you know, five in the morning, as some of us would do for the early shows, and yeah. all of the chairs had been removed from the conference rooms. Oh, I Mike remember Bloomberg, that day. Oh, yeah. Mike Bloomberg <laughs> had returned from his stint as mayor of New York City and was ticked off at all day? the long meetings. Oh, so over yeah. the weekend, he had the custodial staff get rid of every chair in every meeting room just to get the mm -hmm. meetings over with faster. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, that was quite a day and it was a, a big shift. But I mean, it helped things. Suddenly you had to have standing meetings. You had to have uh, walking meetings and you're more productive that way. I mean, and science has borne that out. Now it's just like one giant building full of Aaron Sorkin shows. Corey, what is your next drill down? I'm looking at a shipping company, Ardmore Shipping. Uh, I described it in, the, in, our, in our tease at the beginning of the show as a giant, eh, Billion dollar enterprise value, but uh, an important company in shipping in the world of oil and gas. And I thought it would actually tell some interesting things. And indeed, as you're about to hear, it will. Ardmore shipping trades under ASC and shares have jumped 35% since the start of 2023. And get this, ASC shares have risen 387% over the past 12 months. Yeah, the stock's been on a fantastic run, not least of which because it's gone from call it 200 million of revenues uh, in 2021 to just short of $500 million in revenues in 2022. And it went from a $37 million loss to $125 million profit. So you that go from a, a loss to a profit, you more than double your revenues. 
um, and start paying a dividend. And this company doesn't come up if you if you were to do like stock market screens for dividends and stuff for whatever reason, the way that they have a variable dividend, um, it doesn't show up in screens as paying a dividend at all. But in fact, they're paying, uh, they paid out 45 cents per share for the most recent quarter. I'm not good at math, but that sounds like about a dollar eighty a share and about an, an $18 stock. That's about a 10% dividend yield right now. Uh, that's assuming there isn't a special dividend, a possibility that they raised during their conference call reporting these results. But one of the really interesting things is, you know, this is a company in the business of shipping refined product from oil and gas. They don't ship crude, but they have dozens of ships out there shipping refined product, whether it's naphtha or it's it's diesel or gasoline. And the, of course, the biggest change in the world in the last couple of years, flat out, let alone as in oil and gas, is the war in Ukraine and the um, freezing of markets from Russian products, most of which uh, more, more than any other is oil and gas. So there is a, we know that Russia is still selling oil uh, mm-hmm. and to some degree some refined product diesel as well, but they're doing so illegally uh, against the, um, the rules that the uh, global market has set down for Russia. The result is there is a, a shadow fleet of illegal ships shipping this product. And the size of that fleet and the effect of that fleet on that fleet itself is so interesting. Chief Commercial Officer of Ardmore Shipping, uh, uh, who has a wonderful name of Gernot Ruppelt. Uh, Gernot Ruppelt talked about, um, uh, in the conference call this, this most recent quarter, he was asked to estimate the size of this fleet. And we'll hear what he had to say about that. But one of the things he talked about, this, this so-called shadow fleet, was that once these these things these 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 ships pick up uh, crude oil or pick up refined products from Russia, they can't deliver to the illegal market in India and China, which is where all the crude is going, according to these guys, or the refined product, which is going to other countries in the Middle East and possibly to Africa. They can't pick stuff up and go somewhere else because they are banned because they are part of this shadow fleet. So they're right. empty on one haul of this thing. It's very expensive, and they may not be welcomed back into the global community of shipping once this conflict uh, is over whenever that might be the result of which is they're getting lousy old ships that aren't very uh, um, uh, fast, aren't very efficient to run and indeed are running uh, empty for half of, of their trips. So it was interesting to hear uh, the discussion from the chief commercial officer of uh, Ardmore Shipping about um, the shadow fleet and its size. Check this out. Unfortunately, it's not like these ships fly a flag that says shadow fleet. <laughs> uh, you have to um, you have to use sort of various um, data points to extrapolate which ships are likely to uh, end up in the so-called shadow fleet. It's a bit too early to tell. Of course, now we can see that certain ships trade into into those Russian export cargos, and it will become more uh, apparent. I've heard a lot of different estimates, and I almost don't want to transfer myself. But I think it's you know I think 100 or 120 ships. Uh, could easily be uh, uh, they're dedicated to those trades, and the way you extrapolate is usually uh, age. So these are older ships, less sophisticated, and then you know you can look at certain demographics within the uh, distribution of ship owners, you know, owners that would typically be a bit more prone and 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 risk taking towards uh, potential sanctions violations and and just exploiting exploiting trades that you know we uh, we would not, you know, get anywhere near to. Uh, so I think uh, it, it is a fairly safe assumption to say that these ships will be 
uh, not, you know, in a perfect world, from that owner's perspective, you would take a, a Russian cargo to the Middle East and then load another clean product cargo and take it right back to Europe. That is unlikely to play out. Um, this is just going to be ships that ballast back, uh, essentially back to Russia, and certainly the way it's freighted is still making sense for them. But I think for the wider market, the important message is really that uh, these ships will be dedicated to those um, to those shadow trades and uh, and are de facto removed from the markets that uh, we would find ourselves in. So it is actually still uh, it's important from a Tonmar perspective, and it's probably even more so important considering that it's very inefficient in terms of how you can actually really ship those cargos. A lot of empty legs uh, for these ships to get back to to the Baltic states. So. That shadow fleet is actually creating additional demand for Ardmore shipping. It's, ca- it's causing prices to be higher for their, their ton per, per mile, which is, which is the metric that they use in the shipping business. And so for refined uh, oil products, gasoline, like I said, naphtha, um, uh, uh, diesel, uh, the, the shipping rates have gone up. The routes have gotten longer and stranger. And uh, the result is more revenues, more profits, and yes, dividends for Ardmore shipping. Corey, what's your next drill down? Well, another fascinating, weird business, S&P 500 member, Wesco International. Wesco International trades under WCC and shares have gained 36% since the start of 2023 and gained 29% in a year. This Pittsburgh, uh, Pennsylvania company, 101 years old. They sell some of those boring stuff you can imagine, like electrical equipment supplies, security (laughs) lighting, wire and cable. Oh yeah, some uh, d- uh, data. Hey, someone's got to sell contractor it. stuff. Yeah, oh, absolutely, and they make a lot of money doing yeah. so. Uh, wire, mm-hmm. cable, transformers, we, uh, all switches. the things we need. Yeah, yeah, high voltage, uh, uh, pre-wired meters and capacitor banks, meter testing, personal protective equipment, boring stuff, right? So, what was really interesting to me in the conference call this week was that this company is not just spending a ton in CapEx, whatever, $100 million in CapEx. They're spending an extra $40 million on digital transformation. This company here in 2023 is putting $40 million out to build data centers, to build out their cloud infrastructure, because they really see that their ability to manage uh, the company using the techniques and tools only available through digital cloud services is helping them uh, run their business more efficiently, know what products are, adjust prices of their their uh, tens of thousands of products using AI. Yes, they're using AI to change the prices on their system based on uh, ever-changing demand uh, and, and their availability of, of stuff uh, to sell all on the fly and spending tens of millions of dollars on that digital transformation. Here's CEO John Engel. You mentioned that, you know, we've got a, we got a new digital uh, digital's impacted uh, a series of applications across our company. I've cited those before, our investor day last year, and they include what we're seeing tremendous benefits from thus far, our AI-enabled product search, our intelligent pricing application, and something we call unified sales desk, which is brand new and kind of knits together all the applications and the behind the scenes work we've done on our big data in, a, in, our, in one master data lake and making that, turning that into more valuable information that we can use as we, as the sales force engages with customers and developing their solutions. It also includes products that are 
that include an as-a-service capability like that AV as-a-service that we highlighted a year ago. And so we're getting very nice momentum with, with those as we continue to also build out the tech stack that we took you through at Investor Day, where we've got a new, uh, you know, new finance app implementation, a new human capital implementation. They're, on, they're in place uh, and continue to be expanded. And we've started with our WMS TMS rollout. So I, I just find it endlessly fascinating, uh, Isaac, how companies are using digital and how digital is so important to companies of all stripes and and and, and still a very active, um, you know, here in Silicon Valley, we start to think that everybody's online and everybody's managing their products using Salesforce and the best Oracle's got to offer and, and they just aren't. And they're still just uh, embracing some of this stuff. And even as we see something of a slowdown in corporate spending, we're still seeing a lot of companies spending tens of millions of dollars to get more digital to transform their businesses using uh, new tools like AI uh, and it's driving profitability for weird ass companies like Wesco. Well, number one, I don't think this company is a weird ass company like you're labeling it, but I mean, what's telling to me is it's better late than never, I guess. Um, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm surprised that I didn't do this years before. Especially well, I'm sure when they did. I'm their sure bread that they and butter were digital is in their own way, and I'm sure that they were online, and I'm sure that they had web-based products and maybe even mobile-based products. But we're in a whole digital new... in their own way. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's not saying bless your heart. You're digital in your own way. Bless your heart. We'll wait until they start to embrace the notion of subscriptions. Our oh, next guest, uh, uh, Tenzo, um, fascinating company, Zora, um, that. Uh, is embracing this idea uh, that all of the world might someday be for rent and all of the products that you now purchase, you might one day rent and better rent and prefer to rent and get all the things that come with that, including the complexity around the billing, which is what his company is reaping the benefits of. We're going to talk about that entire nature of, of how business is changing, moving in this direction in, in, in sectors you wouldn't imagine, like automobiles, with our next guest, the Zora CEO, right after this. The Drill Down is brought to you by Braintrust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Braintrust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com, that's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com, to learn more. All right, welcome back to The Drill Down Podcast. As promised, we are joined right now by uh, Teen Zoe. Uh, whose company Zora is a fascinating enterprise software company on a new kind of cutting edge with the notion of subscriptions all behind it. Uh, Bettine, you've been around uh, Silicon Valley a little bit, um, as have I, uh, to see uh, a number of really important changes in technology over the course of, the, let's call it 20 plus years. Yeah, absolutely. I've been uh, a little embarrassed to say, but I have been in the industry quite a bit. Uh, probably predates even before the PC era. And so saw the uh, the spread of the PCs, the shift from mainframes to minis, computers, and obviously the last um, 20 years or so, the explosion of the internet and all the uh, all the downstream effects. I thought uh, it'd be interesting to hear your story, not going from Brooklyn to Cornell or from Cornell into enterprise software. But I heard you once tell the story of meeting Mark Benioff while you were both working at Oracle and, and sort of how you're, when you started to recognize or we're seeing some really big changes in 
the new wave of computing about to happen. In that case, it was it was going from uh, you know client server to the internet. Yeah, absolutely. I, I was um, I was actually in the sales organization at Oracle at the time. This is going to be the mid nineties, and I was one of the early folks that uh, was uh, playing around with this thing called Mosaic, which uh, ultimately became became Netscape. And so uh, there were very few people at Oracle at the time that really understood the implication of this, understood the internet. I happened to be covering an account called MCI. And MCI at the moment um, owned huge swaths of the internet backbone, right? Back then when it was still in this- You know, it bought Netscape, right? Phase. That was uh, one of those important backbone elements of the internet. Um, yeah, I think MCI no, 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 bought UUNet. Netcom, Netcom. Yeah, that Netcom, that's right. That's right. That's right. And this is this is you know, just to help people sort of place this in time. Uh, you know, there was no high speed internet. There was no Wi Fi. There was no DSL. There were no cable modems. And so um, you know, the companies at their offices had high speed lines, but at home and in hotels, we were dialing up where we were doing fifty six k U.S. robotics uh, modems and in a dial up interface. So this is fairly early stage of the internet, but because MCI really owned huge sets of the internet backbone, they had a vision and they wanted to come to Oracle to hear what Oracle's vision for was for the internet. And, um, and the only person that really knew anything about this was, was Mark Benioff. And so they wanted to talk to Larry. Larry uh, tapped uh, Mark to Larry come Ellison, in and present and, and Oracle, I brought yeah. That's right. That's right. And I brought the CTO um, and, and, and all there's like all these divisional CIOs of MCI to corporate to, to Redwood Shores. I can see the buildings from where I'm sitting right now. And, um, and, and, and Mark dazzled him with, uh, with Oracle's vision of where, where they were going to be. And there was a, again, this is an early, early a product that someone in Oracle Europe had, had built and, and Mark brought it to corporate and allowed a browser and you know, what we think of as Chrome now, but back then it was Mosaic Communications to basically in real time access data from an Oracle database. And this is mind blowing stuff back then, right? Because this is so early. And um, and that really sparked a relationship between Oracle and MCI, between Mark and John Gertleman. And that was my first meeting, my first time that I had ever met uh, Mark Benioff. And you ended up following him to start a company called Salesforce. Yeah, so two years later, uh, maybe a year later, I was, um, Actually, this would have been three years later because there was a there's two years of business school in between, um, and um, you know I was working in a software company and saying, look, what, uh, how can I be really back at a traditional enterprise software company? I really need to be in an internet company. At the time, the only internet companies were you know these these consumer companies, Webvan, Pets.com, right? And this is the the early I was stage one of the dot com, the street.com in that era, yeah. The street.com. Yeah. Well, years later, um, as Zora, we, we, we power the street and, and got to meet and, and get to know Jim Cramer pretty well. And so the street became a, a sort of a full circle there. But, um, but, but I was looking around saying, look, I, I, I want to join a company that was going to marry where enterprise software was going, you know, business applications and the internet found out what Mark was doing at, um, at this, Unknown, unheard of company called Salesforce.com uh, reached out. Uh, Mark interviewed me in his house since there were no offices yet. And that was the place up at the I top said, Let's of do uh, this. North Let's Beach, right underneath Coit Tower, right? That's right. He was up uh, on Telegraph Hill at the time. That's right. Who knew? 
Who knew? Now he's got a now he's got a tower higher than Coit Tower in San Francisco. Um, <laughs> I, so the reason I ask is is I, I think it's very intriguing that you've seen um, and recognized early these really big new developments in computing and seen uh, uh, going from what you know computers that were locally wired or wired to servers in a back room to the notion of what the internet might be and maybe you could try to figure that out and apply it to enterprise and apply it to business to business. And then you start to see this notion of software as a service and you start to see what Salesforce can be and get involved with in that really early. So then then comes around your idea for, the, for your company based on this idea of subscriptions, which isn't necessarily a technological um, uh, development as much as a, as a methodology of payments, or is it? Well, you're, you're absolutely right. And so a lot of my career has been sp spent on the next evolution uh, it's caused by some technology shift right so mainframe and mini computers the pcs is oracle uh, obviously the, the the client server computers to 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 the internet now you know what we call cloud computing that was at salesforce um but you know at, at salesforce we, we always talked about two big model shifts we would talk about a new technology model which is now what we call cloud computing right software as a service but we talked just as much about a new business model about really taking this this pay-as-you-go subscription-based model. And, and that was an important thing. And the two went hand in hand, right? The technology shift and the business model shift really went hand in hand. If you're going to ask customers to say, you don't have to buy my product, just simply point your browser, your device, whatever it happens to be to the service that I have, you know, in the cloud, um, then you start to look a lot more like a telecom company, right? The phone companies, the phone companies don't ask you to buy switches, towers, satellites. It's simply the service out buy there. phones anymore. And Four years yeah. ago, you had to buy your phone. You can bundle the phone, right? It's, it's, it's simply part of the monthly fees, and so um, and so we thought that really that that concept could really apply to 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 enterprise software with this new shift. And so, if you look at what the work we did at Salesforce, it was really studying that, studying that, and and, and making that work. And and so, some of the concepts in software as a service today, with you know customer success teams and terminology like ARR and ACV. You know, that was really, really things that we created at Salesforce. And so fast forward to 2007, the thought was, look, is this, is this shift really applying just to uh, the software industry or can, can it apply to, to, to any industry and in any company in any industry? And if you look at what's happened here at Zora, you know, we're in the middle, ground zero of the shift, if you will. And one of the biggest transformations that we're seeing unfold right now is, is how the Internet of Things and connected devices is bringing the whole physical world and the whole manufacturing sector, which is, you know, by some counts, four to five times bigger than the technology sector, into the same revolution that happened in software. And so I was at a, at a conference called uh, Bosch World about connected devices. And you've got the chief digital officer, the CEO of this, this you know, this, this, I think they're like 100 years old, right, company, that, that, that manufacturing strength, getting up there and talking about ARR talking about customer churn, talking about customer success. And so, um, you know, we took a leap of faith in 2007, 2008 and said, really any company in any industry could follow the same path, become a subscription business. And you and I one day would stop, you know, buying DVDs, buying cars, buying appliances. And just like we have stopped buying software and hardware and we simply subscribe to services and that's the future. And, you know, let's, let's, let's go be part of um, a company that's, that's, let's go create a company that's going to help be part of creating this future. So where does Zora sit in that? Um, let's say you've got a company that wants to go to offering their product as a service. What do you guys come in and help them do? 
Well, you know, um, I mentioned MCI before. MCI was one of the big three telecom companies in the U.S., you know, AT&T, MCI, with the two biggies. And, and so I had a deep experience in the, the telecom industry, in the telecom sector, specifically in the IT systems, if you will, that telecom companies use to power their business models. And so you get a sense when you study these things that they're very, very different than say, you know, an SAP or an Oracle that a manufacturing company might use, right? These so-called ERP systems. And so we experienced that at Salesforce. We experienced that for us to, to execute our business model for us to do the things that we want to do. Again, you know, sort of taking for granted in the software sector and the software as a service sector now, but we had to create these concepts of why don't we have multiple editions of the software, professional edition, enterprise edition. Why don't we let customers pay either by the month or the quarter or the year? Why don't we let them add users as they go along, right? And basically dial their consumption levels up and down. And you can't do any of these things. You can't do any of these things if we're in a system that's fundamentally meant to help you make and ship units of product. And so we wound up building our own billing system at Salesforce to, to, to enable us to do all these strategies. And so the logic the, is, was pretty simple. Well, let, me, let, me, let me back you up for a second there. What was yeah. the big obstacle to that? Doesn't seem that complicated to me, Gosh, like, but I'm not that smart. I don't know. Yeah. So if you're, if you're, yeah, if you're building, if you're, if you're making or shipping or selling a product, you sell it one unit at a time. Yes, you can buy like 10 units, but it's one order at a time. And the price is not flexible. The price is, hey, the price of this unit is five bucks, six bucks, 10 bucks. Maybe there's some volume discounts, right? But it's all anchored on that. And in a service model, it's very different. You know, we just simply say, you know, Chris, just, just go ahead and, and use my service. And I'll measure usage in some way. It could be per user, it could be per day, it could be per, per gigabyte. And, um, and eventually I will, um, I'll go ahead and, 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 and figure out how much you owe me and send you a bill. And that process is called So maybe it's billing. not as simple as like Adobe that charges you a monthly amount for Adobe on the cloud instead of getting the, I don't know, the software downloaded and you buy it once forever. But it's more complicated. It's based on usage or it's based on something. It's an ongoing, it's an ongoing relationship. It's an ongoing relationship. It's not a one-time sale. You're using the service on a day-to-day basis. There's got to be an ongoing process, if you will, an ongoing system that translates usage and consumption down to um, down to a bill. So, so that system is very, very different. And if you try to take a system that's meant for selling one-time, discrete transactions to something that's about nurturing and monetizing continuous customer relationships, it just simply doesn't work. And, and the telecom companies realize this, right? The telecom companies don't use. SAP. They don't use Oracle. They use their own set of systems from you know, companies like, they're called Amdocs, right? And um, you know, Amdocs is probably the biggest one right now. Uh, CSG is another one. And, but they're very, very specific, industry specific. So we said, look, let's take our experience at Salesforce. Let's understand if every company is going to become a service provider, right? Cars as a service, uh, refrigerators as a service, industrial machinery as a service, you know, robot vacuums as a service, whatever it happens to be. Now, how do we build, basically, take the best of the concepts in the telco billing system that allows telecom companies to do what they do and go into gigantic companies, and, um, but really make it available for the masses, right? Make it available for any company in any industry to get started and, and, and grow and build. And, and, and that's what we've been doing. And so it's, it's been really, really interesting being on ground zero, seeing the transformations of these industries, whether when we started working with newspapers, they didn't believe anybody would pay for, for free. And now the New York Times is saying, look, we have 10 million subscribers. And I remember 
when the New York Times started their digital journey, uh, they didn't think they can get to a million subscribers, right? Because, you know, how many people can we actually get to subscribe to the paper in the city of New York? And now they're, they're, there's a global brand and, and they're able to draw subscribers from, from all over the world. We've seen this happen in cars. We power nine of the top 12 car companies now. And every car that you buy is connected to the internet. You know, you can check it, the status of it on your phone. There's all these apps that you can download. And, and so there's all this world of possibilities now, all the way through to, you know, iRobot. You don't have to pay $700, $800, $900 for that robot vacuum now. You can go to their website and say, look, I'll simply pay 30 bucks a month and it's a dollar a day to come back to a clean home, right? And so why wouldn't I do that? At what point are they charging per uh, piece of lint? I sort of mean that realistically, right? If you're talking about the different metrics uh, by which a company can measure usage are, and, and you're talking about the Internet of Things, it sounds like what you're really talking about is some capabilities that are coming out of AI. I think about a company that I'm close to, uh, C3.ai. I did some work for them for once upon a time, full disclosure. But the notion there, speaking of Oracle alumni, Tom Siebel, um, the, the, the notion of being able to measure everything lets you charge in different ways. I would imagine that AI opens up all kinds of possibilities uh, for Zora. Oh, absolutely. I mean, innovations we're seeing are amazing. We work with three of the five biggest tire manufacturers. And, and at first I was like, well, how would a tire manufacturer use us? It's not electronic, it's not digital, it's a, it's a physical thing. But it turns out it's uh, all the tires that you have right now or have a lot of sensors. They're low power sensors, they collect information, they know how much tread is left in the tire Based on that, they can determine using AI how many miles you've driven, how you've driven. And so each of these companies have service centers where as soon as the tire you know, goes over a little bump, uh, there's a little radio transmission between the tire and the bump that says, here's, here's my status. And, um, and so they literally are able to charge based on miles driven or based on you know, 1 16th inch of a tread that's being used. And they will monitor that. And when you when your tread gets to a certain level, they'll replace the tires and they'll simply charge you based on you know, what they know about this. And so it's, uh, it's, it's, it's pretty fascinating. And, and these are all like really, really early stages that, that you're seeing. Um, you can actually go to a Bridgestone or a Firestone service center now and actually subscribe to this. But I don't know. It's yet part of our day to day lives. So this, this, is, this is 1999 with software as a service. It's all about to explode. And it's all about so to happen and unfold. In the next few years. There's also some financial engineering that goes with that too, right? Where companies might have to put up the cost of a, and you've watched companies really struggle with that uh, in the software world. I, I mentioned Adobe earlier, or uh, Autodesk, another company. When you watch them move from selling their software in a box to software as a service or software to download to software as a service, there was a, an immediate interruption in revenues because while customers might start paying you one, you know, one twelfth a month, that one big sale every year didn't happen. And so that big chunk of revenues didn't show up in the ways that it used to. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So, so we took a lot of these concepts and a few years ago, we, we, we put it all this in a book that we call subscribed. It's a, uh, you know, it's a bestseller in a, in a whole bunch of different countries. And uh, in Japan, it's like required reading for, 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 for business leaders. And one of the things that people love referencing the book is this concept called swallowing the fish. And it's a concept that, you know, that we borrowed from J.B. Wood over there at TSIA, but it's basically saying, look, in the short term, you're going to see your revenues fall because you're taking revenue over time, right? Once you're through the transition, your revenue is going to grow. And guess what? It's going to be sustainable, um, you know, uh, um, resilient growth, if you will. 
In the meantime, you might see your expenses go up because you have all this cloud infrastructure or you know new infrastructure that you need to build. And what you really want to do is you really want to go through this phase where eventually costs will come down, at least on a per unit basis, and eventually revenues will go up and, and, and things will be good. But how do you sort of cross that, that, that phase of time? Right. And if you look That's at the divine. diagram, it looks, like a, it looks like a goldfish. And so I have a ton of manufacturing companies that have read the book and come back and reference that as, as hey, we need to go swallow the fish, just like Adobe did, just like Microsoft has done. And in the software sector, is, is lucky because we did have a, co- a company like Adobe show the way, right? Salesforce is fantastic, but Salesforce was a pure subscription business versus a company in transformation. And so when we talk to, to, to you know, again, these are, these are you know, multi-billion, 10, 20, $100 billion manufacturing companies that have been around for 50, 100, 200 years. And so they're more, they take more inspiration from Adobe because they're saying, look, we have a transformation that's ahead of us, right? Versus we, we have to be like Salesforce and, and start, start in this manner. Well, so so what is the? Let me ask you, sort of, final as we wind down here, what what is the thing that's going to drive that uh, that sushi moment, that a, a massive adoption of swallowing the fish? Well, it's uh, and so this tends to be, and it tends to need to be a top down initiative. It tends to be something where the CEO, the boardroom, the, the executives are are bought in on this transformation, and so success breeds success. In the newspaper sector, once people saw that the New York Times, the success they're having, every other newspaper, every other you know, publishing house really followed suit. Um, same thing, right? GM was lucky and then had, you know, it had about, uh, I think, like five or six million subs for OnStar. And that became their foundation for their Connected Car initiative. And once people saw the potential, once people see the success of Tesla, Rivian starting to sell you subscriptions, you know, they all inspired really to do the same thing. And then the manufacturing companies, you know, I'll tell you that the, the, the arc often starts with engineering. And it's the same thing that happened at Salesforce, right? The first time we ever pushed our first release, and, and these are you know, software folks, and never really, you never really quite knew how your customers were using your products, right? Because it was on a CD and they would do something with it. But now in real, you know, we have real-time information. Are they creating contacts? Are they running reports? Are they even logging in? And so now you imagine the millions of, you know, washing machine engineers, car engineers, uh, you know, anything out there, the, the Caterpillar tractor engineers, they're actually seeing how their customers are using their product and it's mind blowing for them. And they're going to go through the same journey, which is we can do a much better job if we can take more control over the experience. And the way we do that is by rethinking this as a service. And then once they realize this and they're like, oh, wow, there's so many other things that we can now do. And so there's vast new revenue streams that we can now tap into that we might not have realized when we saw ourselves as an appliance company. So an exercise that we love taking our customers through is, what, is your, what do your customers really want? All right, so if you look at one of our customers, Fender, do they really want to buy a guitar or do they really want to be a rock star or feel like a rock star? And obviously it's the latter, right? Do you really want to buy a vacuum or do you want to come home to a clean home? And can you use digital technologies in this as a service mindset to actually deliver what the customer wants, to guide them through it to watch where they may be, you know, falling short of it, put them back on and says, you haven't played the guitar in three days. Let me send you, you know, I know you like blues. I know you like rock stars songs. I know you like pop songs. I know you like this band. Let me send you a few riffs that are at the level that you're at and get you back into it. And, and, and we can use these techniques now to really get people what they want. And then have huge, huge revenue streams as, as, as a result. And that's really the inspiration that we try to put for companies. Now, obviously we have a technology infrastructure that makes this all possible, right? But, but ultimately 
It's about helping companies transform their businesses, their industries by starting with their customers and revisualizing their business as helping nurture and monetize these subscriber relationships. Fascinating concept, Tenzora. Thank you very much for your time. Tenzora, I should say. Zora is the company. Zoe's his last name. He's got ultimate job security because the company's named after him. Good thinking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It worked for Tom Siebel, right? I don't know why he didn't do it again. Yeah, it, it did. It did. It, it, at least once so far. Um, all right, great stuff. We appreciate your time uh, here on the Drill Down Podcast. Coming up next, Absolutely. we've got the Drill Thanks, Down Bart. Bite, that one number that tells us a whole lot about Zora. The Drill Down is brought to you by ERA. With ERA, give yourself an information advantage, connect directly to earnings calls and other investor events with live transcription and event intelligence. That's ERA, A-I-E-R-A.com. And if you enjoyed the Drill Down podcast, we hope that you do. We hope you'll tell a friend. Leave a review for us on iTunes or even just call up some old buddy from uh, business school or maybe medical school or maybe um, you were in the CIA and you can't call anybody. You just have to send out smoke signals or leave the chalk mark next to a building. It's a secret drop spot. I don't know how you communicate with the people you've been around, but if you find this show interesting, surely you know someone else who would as well. So spread the word and tell them about the Drill Down Podcast. And let us know what companies you think we should be drilling down on. Talk to us on Twitter and Instagram by following at Drill Down Pod and connect with us directly at our website, thispod.net. We're back with the Drill Down Bite, the one number that tells us a whole lot about Zora. And uh, Isaac, that number is 384 million. And what would that be? That would be the trailing 12-month revenues for Zora. This company is selling a lot of software and services um, and growing at about a 14%, 15% clip, 14% clip over the last uh, compounded annual growth rate of the last 12 months. But again, uh, just under $400 million in revenue, uh, but this company very steadily growing and such an interesting business, such an interesting conversation. Yeah, I, um, it was very, it was very cool to hear his experience in the Valley and in San Francisco and then working, you know, building this company. Yeah. Um, as you said to me, uh, during the break, uh, it's a good one for a change. Yeah, no, <laughs> not for a change. That. By the way, full disclosure, I have downloaded his book, subscribed. And I'm going to listen to it uh, this month. All right. I will let you know how it goes. Yeah. Uh, Interesting company. One we'll keep an eye on. Are you been listening to Drill on Podcasts? We're grateful for your time. Isaac Webster is our executive producer. Ben Wilson's our editor extraordinaire. I'm Corey Johnson. The Drill Down's a production of the Business Podcast Network.